0: These comments deal with Haidt's uh, chapter 10. I've called it Finding Purpose Within Life Through Engagement. The title uh, refers to the distinction that Height makes between uh, the purpose of life and the purpose uh, that one forms within life. And uh, most of the chapter talks about the, the latter. He dismisses uh, the former as one that uh, psychology is not particularly able to to uh, answer. But before I uh, talk a bit about the idea of purpose within life, I just wanted to point out that I've given you a link on the topic of existential psychology, because Haidt introduces the chapter with a bit of work about existential uh, dilemmas, existential problems, and there is an area of psychology called existential psychology. And it's based on the idea that uh, humans are on the earth, In the absence uh, of a creator, there is no plan. What humans have to do is figure out for themselves, and each individual has to take responsibility uh, for himself or herself uh, to find their way uh, in the world. A key idea of existential psychology is that people need to find authentic solutions uh, to this problem, and that's in um, differentiation from uh, conformity uh, solutions. Existential therapies are often concerned with helping people find a sense of meaning and purpose uh, in life, but finding one that suits them and their talents, their abilities, uh, skills, interests, uh, and the situation. If you do follow this link, uh, you'll have to scroll down a bit uh, when you get into it, because uh, it starts off with a couple of other types of uh, psychology, but uh, it's only the third or fourth one down is existential psychology. So Haidt talks about uh, the idea of finding purpose uh, within life. He takes what I would call a a basically humanistic psychology approach, the idea that uh, each of us has within us uh, the power uh, to develop, and he uses this garden metaphor, which is common uh, in humanistic uh, circles. Uh, The idea that uh, humans are like uh, plants, and if you provide uh, the right conditions for them uh, humans will take care of themselves they will uh, flourish so is the term that's often used more specifically in this chapter height says that if you provide the right conditions then a a purpose for your life will emerge uh, for you what are the right conditions well in this chapter he talks uh, just a little bit about love or more generally, relationship with others. He talks in a good deal of detail about uh, work, uh, relationships uh, with projects, ideas, so forth. And uh, he talks a bit about the idea of uh, individuals connecting uh, in their life to something larger. Basically, his idea is that the purpose of life will emerge, a person will feel a sense of happiness or fulfillment, By getting the relationship right between themselves and others, the relationship right between themselves and their work, and getting the relationship right between themselves and something larger uh, than themselves. So the between of his title, uh, Happiness Comes From Between, is the relationship between oneself and others. The relationship between oneself and their work relationship between oneself and whatever it is that they find uh, as the larger thing within which uh, they view themselves okay so i'd like to go through the chapter and just make a few comments on some of the uh, topics that he raises Uh, the bulk of the chapter is around uh, work uh, relations he introduces the idea from robert white of uh, the affectance uh, motive or what is uh, sometimes called uh, competence motivation. And I've given you a link where you can read a little, it's just a short uh, couple of paragraphs uh, about uh, Robert White and the idea of competence motivation. Height makes the point that competence motivation is not like a hunger, thirst, sex drive, which are all based on uh, deficiency that we don't have enough to eat, uh, for example, and uh, so we seek out Uh, to fill that uh, deprivation. Uh, Competence motivation is a more general kind of desire to feel competent, uh, to show one's skills and uh, to learn new skills. White uh, talks about Harlow seeing this characteristic in monkeys of liking to uh, play with things, figure out uh, problems, manipulating with their hands, and uh, and White is suggesting that that people take this uh, further, not just uh, being competent with your hands and manipulating things, but with ideas uh, in general. One of the concerns that height uh, has about work is that it may not provide much opportunity to satisfy this affectance motive. In fact, uh, much work in contemporary society has this characteristic of alienation, that is the person who's doing the work is uh, engaged in some kind of process, the outcome of which is of virtually no relevance uh, to the person themselves. They do the work in order uh, to earn an income, but they have no attachment to the uh, product that comes from their labor. And this is in distinction with uh, earlier times when people were often engaged uh, in production of materials that they would use for their own or the community's uh, benefit. And in these cases, we would say that the people were engaged with their um, labor, the product, rather than alienated uh, from it. I've given you a link here to an excellent book on uh, on working. It's by uh, Studs Turkel, It's actually a journalist, but takes a very anthropological approach uh, oral historian, some people have called him. He interviewed a large number of uh, people with respect to their uh, work. I've given you a link uh, to a brief article that you can read about uh, Turkel's interviews. And one of the things that comes across, uh, even in the short piece that I've uh, linked you to, is the ways uh, in which this affectance uh, motive uh, plays a large role in people's work. There's much more satisfaction when the when the work offers some opportunity to develop and demonstrate uh, one's competence in a meaningful way. Turkle also gives uh, several examples of people who engage in the cognitive reframing process that Haidt mentions with respect to uh, the hospital janitor who was able to find a way to imagine his work as both competent and uh, effective, important, meaningful in the lives of other people. Turco gives uh, just as many, if not more, examples in his work of uh, people were not able to find these aspects. Uh, the work was not seen as meaningful, didn't give much opportunity f- to satisfy the affectance motive. And people found it difficult, uh, often for systemic reasons, to reconceptualize their work in a way that uh, it could be seen as meaningful and contributing in meaningful ways. It's important to keep in mind as you read through this uh, material in height, that uh, the point of it is that work is one of the primary means by which we foster connections uh, with other people. In addition, he's saying it's also the way in which we foster connections with projects and ideas. And as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, these are two of the most important ways in which he sees uh, happiness, uh, fulfillment, developing. One of the characteristics that the positive psychologists uh, have found with respect to work uh, is this notion of uh, vital engagement. Nakamura is the name of the woman who's done the most work on this. She worked with uh, Hai, who we talked about uh, earlier. It's involved with the concept of flow. Vital engagement is a combination of working in a manner that frequently yields flow, uh, but also meaning uh, that there's substantial subjective significance associated with it. I want to take a moment just to comment on flow, because in reading through the dialogue forum, uh, I see that a number of people are not quite getting the idea of flow. I think this is because uh, many people are familiar with this expression, just going with the flow. And many people are writing uh, about flow as though that were the meaning that uh, Csikszentmihalyi uh, and Height had. And it's not uh, the case. Flow refers to a positive absorption. When we say, "Oh, I was just going with the flow," in fact, that often indicates a kind of detachment. Say, oh, "I didn't know what I wanted to do, and so I just went along with what was happening." You know, that's that's not the positive absorption. It's not what Height uh, and Chiksat Mahai mean by uh, flow. They talk about a they're talking about a situation in which you get caught up in your work you don't notice uh, time uh, passing. This kind of flow comes in a situation where you have a good deal of uh, competence. And that's very different from the situation where you say, oh, I just kind of went with the flow. You may not have much competence at all. You're just following the others uh, going along for the ride, so to speak. So very different notion, a positive absorption uh, a kind of engagement. And it becomes a vital engagement when we talk about it being with a project or an idea or an activity that has a great deal of uh, meaning, uh, subjective significance is a term that uh, Haidt uh, used. It's important uh, for yourself or for others. I've given you a link uh, to a uh, TED talk by Sir Ken Robinson, who takes up many of these ideas in his work. He's very interested in creativity and education. His concern with education is how do we set up an educational system that will allow people to experience more of this vital engagement. He's interested in it for the purposes of creativity, uh, but it's the same uh, concept that Haidt is dealing with. And interestingly, uh, in the uh, talk, He uses the same agricultural, he uses uh, the same agricultural metaphor or garden metaphor that I talked before with respect to humans, that we have to find the conditions that will allow people to prosper in the way that plants do when they're given the appropriate conditions for growth. He wants to create these conditions in schools, and he suggests a number of possibilities that would be helpful in that regard. Some of you may have heard of a book that uh, he's written, that's popular now, uh, called The Element. And in this book, he argues uh, of the importance of people finding their passion in life or, using these terms, finding uh, means of being vitally engaged uh, with their work. And I've given you another link here to um, an interview with Matthew Crawford. Matthew Crawford's a really interesting fellow. He has a PhD in uh, philosophy, and but he's also a motorcycle mechanic and electrician. And he has all the trade certifications in both of those uh, areas. And he currently works both uh, at the University of Virginia in an academic uh, position and uh, also runs uh, in uh, Virginia a motorcycle repair business. He's written a book called shop craft as shop class as soul craft which is an incredible piece of writing uh, but in it he describes how in contemporary society our education system has become oriented towards the production of knowledge workers and he says that in his experience as a knowledge worker he finds that there's actually much more opportunity for what we called before, affectance, satisfying the affectance motive, much more opportunity for critical thinking in the trades. His work as an electrician or as a motorcycle, uh, in motorcycle repair work gives him far more opportunities to make critical judgments, to control his uh, thinking. He argues that many people would be much happier, find it much easier to become vitally engaged If they were to become involved in uh, trade work, uh, plumbing, uh, mechanics, uh, electricity, uh, these kinds of activities, and that it's a serious problem in our educational system that we uh, lower the status of these areas, in fact, have uh, virtually eliminated uh, training in these areas from the school system. Uh, He says that... uh, We have the idea that if uh, work uh, gets one dirty, then it must also be stupid uh, work. And he says that's far from uh, being the case. So he makes quite a good uh, plea, and uh, it's just a fantastic piece of uh, writing as well, the the book that he's written. There's an excerpt uh, from the book on the website where the interview is. So both Crawford and uh, Robinson offer us uh, some discussion about how an educational system could be devised that would promote uh, people into situations uh, with the ability to become uh, vitally engaged. I've also given you a link to a topic which we might consider the opposite of uh, vital engagement, something more closely aligned with alienation, and that's uh, boredom. The link I've given you is a brief uh, article from Scientific American, about some of the research that's been done on boredom. And in the article is mentioned uh, one of York's uh, psychologists, John Eastwood. The only thing I really want to say here is that uh, boredom gives us another opportunity to look at uh, relationship. It's common for people to think of boredom as being a problem with uh, items or opportunities in the environment. Uh, For instance, that uh, book on such and such oh, wow, that's really a boring book. But uh, I think, I mean, Haidt doesn't talk about this topic, but I think consistent with the way he talks about uh, vital engagement would be the notion that uh, it's not that a book is boring, or a movie is boring, or a person is boring. Boredom is a result of a relationship between uh, the individual and the book, or the individual and the movie it lies between uh, the person and the environment. In school situations, some of the most common reasons for finding uh, a, a particular book, uh, for instance, boring, is the person doesn't have the appropriate level of uh, skill to work with the book. It may be that uh, their skill is too low or their skill is too high in relationship uh, to the book. But uh, in either case, uh, the, the relationship between the reader and the text uh, isn't one that is uh, able to produce vital engagement. That relationship needs to change to move from boredom to vital engagement. The relationship has to become one where the person has the competence to get flow and the activity or the situation or the topic of the material has to be one that the person understands well enough to see its significance and work with that significance, become absorbed in it, and so forth. Another topic that uh, Haidt does discuss with respect to uh, happiness and a sense of fulfillment is uh, coherence. He talks about coherence in a couple of different uh, ways. He mentions briefly a topic that he talked about before, McAdams levels of personality. You may recall from our previous discussion of um, personality traits, that uh, McAdams suggests that on one level, people do have uh, traits, but those traits become combined in particular ways that yield uh, particular coping mechanisms, that the uh, person is, uh, are characteristic of the person likely to be stable over time, and that the traits and these coping mechanisms altogether are often formed into a third level of uh, life story. Well, Pite is saying that uh, coherence among these three is much more likely to uh, result in happiness. Now, in fact, I don't find it uh, particularly satisfying, the discussion he gives, and not to say that he's wrong. I don't know that he is, but he doesn't give enough examples uh, from McAdams' work uh, for me to get a good sense of uh, how this coherence would or wouldn't uh, result in Uh, Happiness. But he introduces another uh, three level perspective on uh, the human situation. Uh, These three levels uh, should sound familiar from our discussion through the course of reductionism. Uh, There's the physical biological level, the psychological level, and the sociocultural uh, level. When we talked about reductionism, we talked about how. Uh, psychologists try to explain sociological phenomena on the basis of reducing those phenomena to characteristics of individual uh, humans, Uh, but that biologists uh, seek to reduce psychological phenomena to biological uh, explanations. Well, Haidt isn't talking about uh, reductionism here, but rather he's saying that in any particular situation, Uh, All of these levels are involved. There's a physical, psychological and sociocultural uh, level. He takes one particular example of um, a person uh, in India growing up in a particular sociocultural tradition, uh, experiencing particular psychological uh, phenomena, but in such a way that they become uh, almost embedded uh, physically, certain smells, uh, certain feelings, uh, bodily feelings that become characteristic of the patterns of behavior uh, within the sociocultural um, domain. Again, though, uh, his idea seems to be that if our physical uh, embodiment of these sociological and psychological characteristics line up, with our psychological, um, our our thinking, the psychological cognition, and with the sociocultural uh, domain, then happiness is much more likely uh, to result. This contrary example is participating in uh, somebody else's uh, ritual. He says perhaps you've gone to a, uh, a wedding or some other event where you've been invited to participate in a ritual, which may be very meaningful uh, to the people organizing it, uh, but you can only understand it at a cognitive, psychological level. You don't have the experience of the sociocultural background that uh, that ritual is a part of, nor do you have any of the physical sensations that would come from practicing that ritual over a long period of time. And in this situation, uh, you may be uh, thoughtful, you may be bemused by the situation, But you won't experience it uh, in this vitally engaged uh, fashion or with the kind of fulfillment or happiness that somebody would who was participating in an exercise or an activity where all three of these dimensions were present. He uses the term uh, embodiment and uh, for this notion of some psychological or sociocultural phenomenon becoming part of the the body, physical system. And I've given you a link where you can read just a bit more uh, about this idea. I'll I'll read just a short passage from the link. Uh, It's a Wikipedia entry on embodied cognition. It says, embodiment refers to the idea that the body's internal milieu heavily influences the higher cognitive processes in the brain, presumably by way of the emotional system. To put it simply, the state of your body is a direct factor of importance on the kinds of cognitive processes that may arise in the higher parts of your brain. So, physical states can give rise to various emotions. These have an effect on our cognition. So, do the sociocultural situations in which we find ourselves, and particularly the meaning of the activities in which we're engaged in our sociocultural environment, come from long standing. Uh, practice in those situations, they're connected with physical sensations and cognition uh, and emotion revolve around these. So, Height's point seems to be that when the physical or biological, the psychological and the sociocultural all are in harmony, the person is much more likely to feel a sense of engagement, of wholeness, uh, of fulfillment. I wish that he had uh, given us some more examples of situations where these are not in alignment that uh, we could look at. And uh, I wish I could give you some uh, examples of people talking about how to bring about this kind of alignment, but uh, simply I'm not familiar with this material and uh, so can't do that for you. If, on the other hand, you have some ideas about that or know of some work that you think may fit in this, I'd be very eager to hear about it. Uh, so I could fold it into this discussion in uh, subsequent years. A third kind of uh, coherence argument that he gives has to do with the uh, coherence or discrepancy between one's ideals and their practices. Uh, If you have certain uh, beliefs and yet your activity is out of line with those beliefs, these does seem that this would uh, sensibly lead to some uh, confusion at a minimum and a good deal of unhappiness uh, as well. And it reminds me of a topic I mentioned uh, just briefly in the uh, commentary before on social psychology, and that's the notion of cognitive dissonance, the cognitive dissonance theory of motivation. I've given you a link where you can review this idea, but uh, the general notion is this, that... uh, The theory is that people feel uh, tension if they have two ideas that are inconsistent with one another. Or, as in the case we're talking about here, if they have an idea and a behavior uh, that are in conflict with one another. The example I gave you before had to do with uh, smoking, a person who believes that smoking is harmful uh, but continues to smoke. Uh, This creates a tension or dissonance and people are motivated to try to reduce that dissonance. In the smoking example, uh, one possibility would be to discount uh, the information about the harmfulness of smoking. Another obvious uh, possibility would be to quit uh, smoking. And there are lots of different ways that one might strive to reduce the dissonance. But uh, the point in relationship to this is that coherence between one's uh, cognitions or beliefs and their behavior their ideals and their practices, coherence between those uh, would be a much more comfortable, uh, a happy uh, and maybe even fulfilling uh, situation, as opposed to uh, a misalignment between the two, which from the cognitive distance theory should motivate people to strive to uh, reduce that imbalance. With regard to Haidt's idea about finding meaning, purpose, fulfillment, happiness through relationships with others, Uh, he says that he's talked about this considerably in another chapter under the uh, heading of love. Uh, Here, uh, the topic that he introduces uh, here in this chapter, the topic that he introduces with respect to others is the notion of altruism. Uh, Altruism refers to the idea of doing positive things uh, for others, being helpful to others, perhaps at the expense uh, of one's own uh, situation, even the expense of one's life, perhaps. But altruism in general, would refer to the doing of uh, kindness uh, for others without regard to its uh, benefits uh, for oneself. He says that one of the ways uh, that we find happiness is by providing, uh, fostering, forming uh, a good relationship between oneself and others. And altruism would be one kind of positive relationship of that sort, being kind uh, to others without regard uh, to the consequences for oneself. Height's discussion is largely taken up with uh, evolutionary uh, concerns. The question he's really dealing with is, well, where would altruism come from? Why would people ever be uh, kind or to others or self-sacrificing uh, what would what would be the benefit in in that? Why would why would that happen? And uh, he proposes some evolutionary arguments. Uh, one is the idea of group selection, that a group of people, which uh, has individuals within it who are altruistic, willing to be self-sacrificing for others, while they might uh, it may not be of benefit to them individually for the group as a whole to have large numbers of people with this characteristic would be beneficial to the survival of the group. However, uh, Haidt takes us through some arguments that uh, indicate that many evolutionists have had difficulty accepting the idea that uh, evolution works this way for humans. Uh, He points to the free rider uh, problem. I think this is probably something that you all know about any time that you've been asked to engage in a group project. uh, There are always concerns that arise about free riders. Well, somebody's not going to do any work or I'm going to have to do their work for them and they're going to get a free ride uh, out of the situation. Well, that's exactly the kind of thing that they're talking about and it wouldn't necessarily be with school settings, but uh, any kind of uh, behavior. Uh, he talked about it earlier with respect to the vampire bats that might go around begging for uh food after a poor night of hunting, but not necessarily be willing to help others uh, when they come to uh come begging for food on uh, other nights. Well, the argument that Heke gives us is that the free rider actually benefits from these situations; One would be better off to be a free rider. And if that's the case, then how could altruism ever develop as a group uh, characteristic? Well, he gives us a couple of explanations uh, for that. He's talked about them earlier in the book as well. Uh, The kinship uh, idea and the reciprocal uh, idea. Kinship altruism, reciprocal altruism. And what this basically boils down to is that it makes altruism into a special kind of selfishness. Uh, When one is kind to a close relative, then you're enhancing the survival possibilities for your genes. When you're kind to somebody else uh, because uh, you hope or trust that they will be uh, kind to you in the future of this reciprocal, again, you're protecting uh, your survival, uh, your genes. So altruism becomes just a special kind of uh, selfishness. He says, many evolutionary uh, biologists have taken this uh, idea and said, well, that's, this is the explanation for any altruism that we see. And it's not built into humans uh, generally to be altruistic. But Haidt isn't satisfied with uh, this argument. And he says, all right, so the free rider may benefit if we talk about competition within a group. And, But why do we have to limit our discussion to competition within a group? Can't we have both within-group uh, processes and between-group processes? So in this sense, while it might be true that within a group, a free rider might uh, benefit from the altruism of others. Nevertheless, at the same time, the group might benefit by having large numbers of people who were altruistic in their competition for survival with other groups. In this case, he says, we can have cultural solutions to the free rider uh, problem. That is, think about what do you do when you're in a group and you've got a free rider. You gossip about that person, for instance, is one thing. Now, maybe you confront the person directly, but both of these are cultural solutions to the free rider problem. We have meanings associated uh, with certain kinds of behavior in group uh, work, when people aren't holding up their end, we talk about uh, that, and we have ways uh, of of dealing with it. So this is what uh, Hype means by cultural solutions. And he talks about how culture And genes can uh, evolve simultaneously and actually interact with one another. Once people became able through evolution to develop culture and develop cultural solutions to all sorts of uh, problems in life, their lives improved. And that could include uh, this business of altruism. So it made possible for altruism uh, to develop at the amongst uh, the people, and the free rider could be solved uh, through a cultural uh, mechanism. Uh, I put the term here, uh, meme. Uh, And a meme, I don't know why Haidt doesn't use the term uh, meme, this is a very uh, common idea now. And it seems to fit exactly what he's talking about, the notion of a cultural solution. A meme is a cultural uh, analog to a gene saying like if you come up with an idea and that idea is a really good one and you tell it to me then I'm likely to copy it and use it myself and then somebody will see me doing this and I'll explain to them where I got it and they'll copy it and pretty soon we've got this idea being reproduced uh, in large numbers and if you've got a really good idea it may go viral in the way that uh, certain things do when you post them on uh, YouTube. Well, these are what what, uh, we call these ideas memes, because they're very much like genes. The reproduction of the memes is not through sexual activity, but rather through imitation. And uh, unlike genes, memes can actually be modified by the next uh, person in line. So there are many uh, evolutionists, cultural evolutionists, Uh, talking today in terms of memes in the same way that uh, biological evolutionists uh, talk about genes. And this fits perfectly, it seems to me, with what Haidt's talking about, about the concurrent evolution of uh, genes and culture. So I've talked so far about uh, Haidt's idea of happiness coming from between, where the between refers to the relationship between the self and work, he talked about uh, between with respect to self and others and this altruism in my reference back to his earlier work on uh, love. His third uh, kind of between is the relationship between the self and something bigger, something larger, something grand, something perhaps on this uh, third dimension that he was talking about in the previous um, chapter on the um, dimension of spirituality he mentions two specific things in uh, in this chapter uh, one he's talked about several times before the idea of meditation the notion that in meditation uh, the self is reduced in a sense one gains a sense of uh, oneness uh, with the universe uh, certainly adjoining into Uh, something much larger uh, than the self. The other thing that he mentions is uh, collective ritual, people engaging together uh, in rituals. Uh, These are common in church services from all denominations. Uh, Sometimes they involve music, sometimes chants, uh, recitations. An interesting uh, book that he refers to is William McNeil's uh, book, that uh, deals with uh, the history of synchronized movement and chanting. Uh, William McNeil, you probably haven't uh, heard of before, but he's a very important uh, historian. He's written a very influential book on world history called The Rise of the West. Height tells us that the basis for this particular book was McNeil's experience uh, in army training uh, during the Second World War, where they had to go on long marches in uh, synchronized uh, movements, and the feeling of oneness uh, that developed uh, amongst the soldiers in this uh, situation. McNeil's book deals with this kind of training activity and its effect uh, throughout history. And I've given you a link to the book on uh, Google Books. So let me finish by summarizing uh, once more what Height means by uh, between. He's talking about the importance of relationship. Remember that he said earlier that some people have said that the secret to happiness lies inside us. We have to look inside ourselves to find uh, happiness. He's saying, no, that's not uh, the answer. That may be important, it may be a portion of the answer, but that's not the whole story. He's saying, neither is it outside. We can't find happiness by pursuing things, objects in our environment, storing them up, uh, accumulating them, uh, or experiences, either, that the happiness accumulating a large number of experiences, traveling to all sorts of worlds, so forth. Uh, This won't uh, do the trick, uh, either. Rather, he says, the... It's the relationship between the inside and the outside that has to be cultivated in order to develop happiness. What we're looking for is a kind of vital engagement with others, with ideas, projects, work, and with uh, something larger uh, than ourselves. And if we can provide ourselves and others with these kinds of relationships, Heights hypothesis is that his happiness hypothesis is that purpose within our life will emerge, and from that purpose will come the sense of happiness and fulfillment uh, that we seek.